0: this evening we're going to be looking at the Passover we're going to be looking at Luke 22 1 to 38 without further ado I'm just going to hand straight over to Josh who's going to kick us off with the discussion questions for today
1: yeah um it's great to see everybody I hope you're all well I hope you have all had good weeks um okay weeks however great they can be in the current situation the first question uh, what temptations might cause us to betray someone
0: Um, Greed, so just wanting everything for yourself and
1: backstabbing other people for that. Yeah definitely we like that and no we don't like greed.
2: Um, I guess like gossiping and I don't know how to explain that but sometimes I guess you can be tempted to gossip and um, I guess that could betray someone's trust if they've trusted you with something that they tell you and then you tell someone else. I guess like popularity or attention Um, moving to another group because you think it will benefit you in some other way? I think, to Katie, like to increase your social status. Like a lot of the time, I think people use people as a stepladder to gain popularity and because they believe that if they're more popular, then they'll, their life will be better.
1: Especially in today's culture where it's all protect number one. The next question is as follows. What is provided for us in the name of Jesus? Freedom. Eternal life.
3: Authority over evil things.
2: I feel like in relation to the temptation, I don't really know how to explain this very well, but like I think one thing that I find helpful is when I'm tempted to just remind myself that God has something better planned for me than that temptation. I think quite often that like can be something that is a thought that passes into your mind like what if this is just like you know like like an instant satisfaction and you know it's just like Jesus gives you better than than what you are right now
1: I mean if we're looking at it in like the uh, the biblical sense we've got all the all the different gifts that we can get all the fruits of the spirit perseverance faithfulness wisdom honesty and there's so much that comes in the name of Jesus like everything we need is there, like, like in Jesus, we find everything we possibly need, whether it comes down to things that we look for in ourselves, things that we look for in other people, things that we look for in the world, and yeah, that first question, I mean, when we're looking at this passage and we're looking at somebody betraying someone, I think it's pretty easy to see where, see where we're looking, we're looking at Judas, we're looking at the fact that for money, he agreed to give up Jesus, give up Jesus, for who he said he was. Like Satan entered Judas, like one of the 12. He went to the chief priests and the officers in the temple guards and discussed how he might betray Jesus. He was open to it. he The temptation to betray Jesus didn't come from his person, but came from Satan dwelling in him. Came from that impurity of his own heart because of the fact that he is human compared to Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, 100% of the time. And yeah, it's like Judas betrays Jesus for money. He sees this money and he's like, this is the best situation that I can get out of this. As Arthur said, the first answer to this, the question I asked was greed. Judas saw this money and he was like, I can get so much more out of this than I can the other way. That's him putting himself above Jesus, putting himself on the throne in that situation. We talked about um, instant gratification last week. And it's that necessary to be like, I want this now, this this situation right here that I take can give me so much more than God can give me in his timing. It's a very morbid way, but Judas, this instant gratification he goes for, the money that he goes for, doesn't end great. Judas later hangs himself. He dies. He, he loses literally everything. But not only does he do that, but he has condemned himself to a life in hell. He's condemned himself to that not having eternal life with jesus he has given up everything that he had not for jesus but for the earth but for him there then he gives up his eternal life so that he could have had a little bit of money and this is what jesus is warning us about jesus is warning us that taking the wide gate taking the wide gate can be the path that leads to destruction why does the path that leads to destruction, the narrow gate. Jesus calls us to the narrow gate because he doesn't say it's going to be easy. It's going to be his plan. It's going to be so much better than what we could even possibly imagine for ourselves. Greed all stemmed that, to betray Jesus, to take that money in exchange for Jesus' die on the cross. But Jesus was still in control. Even when Judas betrayed him, that was still in God's plan. God knew that was going to happen. God knew that Judas wasn't going to be perfect he knew that there was there was that part of him that was human because he was human and he gave up Jesus but that just caused Jesus to die on the cross and rise from the grave 3 days later without Judas betraying Jesus we don't have the resurrection as it is there and so much we can see that God's plan is tried to be tampered with as far as it goes but God is always going to prevail like, God is always going to be for us. God is always going to continue to live out his plan on earth for us. Like, however much people run from God's plan, God is always there. God is always there for them to turn back to. Jonah is one of the most amazing stories about this. And he is—he literally he crosses a massive sea to try to escape what God's plan for him is. He's like, I am scared of this. I'm going to run in the opposite direction. And then... Out in the middle of a massive body of water, a fish swallows Jonah. Jonah lives in it and it takes him to where he's going. Uh, I remember talking about this in uh, my church youth group with my youth leader. We were just having a conversation and we coined it the term God Uber because it takes you where you need to go and it is sent from God. Like the big fish wasn't just a big fish. It was God planned and God breathed. And it was a God Uber because it got him to where he needed to be. And even though... Jonah ran away he still ended up doing God's plan even though Judas betrayed Jesus Jesus still rose from the grave there wasn't anything they could do to stop Jesus from rising from the grave because that was God's plan so many times we see that the sun will die and then three days later he will rise again it is prophesied so many times it was God's plan and then the second question I asked was what does God provide for us everything we need is in the name of the Lord everything that we could possibly need is provided for us through jesus as he says when i sent you without purse bag or sandals did you lack anything nothing they answered they didn't lack anything they could have been like oh well the weather wasn't as great as it could have been or "Ah well you see we didn't have enough money to go and get a starbucks on the way back from uh, jerusalem or wherever they went to jesus sent them off and they had everything they needed with them they never found that God would not leave them with what they needed. God always provides. God will always find a way to be for for us. God will always be for us. God will always help us out. God will always be there when we need him. God is for us. God will provide. God will always provide for us. God will always be for us. God will always continue to live out his plan, however much we try to run away from it he will provide a God Uber for us to get back on track. And yeah, I will now hand over to the wonderful Benjamin Coons, Um, give him a big hand, and thank you for listening.
0: Yeah, so before we kick off, would someone like to read the passage, or would maybe two people like to read the passage, it's quite a long one. Luke 22, 1 to 38.
2: I don't mind. <laughs> okay, go ahead then. You can start, Elliot.
3: Okay. <laughs> you just agreed to betray Jesus. Now the Feast of the Unleavened bread called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crown was present. The Last Supper... Then came a day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you the large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed but woe to that man who betrays him they began to question amongst themselves which of them who might be who do this also dispute arose them as to which of them which was considered to be the greatest jesus said to them the kings of the gentiles lord it over them and those who exercise authority over them called themselves benefactors
2: but you are not to be like that instead the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written." and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied.
0: Amazing, thank you so much Elliot, thank you so much Katie. So this passage walks us through the following on events from what we looked at last week in Luke 21, and this passage opens with the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as it's mentioned as in the kind of opening paragraph. Now, you see, the Passover was the Jewish traditional holiday to ensure the remembrance of God's goodness to the people of Israel during the Exodus. You see, here we see this parallel because as God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, so here God will deliver not just Israel, but all humanity from sin through the sacrifice of his son. Now, we're just going to run it back to the Old Testament, and we're just going to go through a brief overview of the Exodus. Genesis 37. Joseph goes to Egypt. You know, Joseph in the technical and dream coat, he's chucked in a well. He's carried off to Egypt and his brothers all pretend that he's died. And then he actually rises through the rank. He grows in status there because God blesses him. You see, God blesses Joseph because Joseph holds fast to God. He holds fast to that hope that even when his entire livelihood has been stripped away from him, he holds fast that God is in control. And we see this growing in status of Joseph through Genesis chapter 39 through Genesis chapter 48. And then we see because of the great famine that Israel eventually relocates to Egypt and there it prospers and endures the famine. And you see, from the time that Joseph was there until the Exodus was 430 years Israel was in Egypt for over 400 years. And we see in Exodus 1 verse 7 that it reads, the people of Israel were faithful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You see, when the people of Israel went into Egypt, there were about 70 of them. And when they left, there was over half a million. But you see, the king changed. And I'm just going to read you a passage from uh, Exodus 1, verse 8 to 11. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. You see, this new king hated Israel. He saw Israel as a threat. He turned them into slaves and was ruthless in his treatment of them. Israel was in a really bad spot. The Pharaoh sent a decree to kill all the Hebrew young boys so that there could be no threat to him. They were oppressed as slaves. We see that later on in early passages of Exodus that the Pharaoh like delivers unreasonable commands. He expects them to not only build huge like temples and pyramids, but he expects them to collect the resources that they need for the bricks anyway. The people of Israel are treated absolutely ruthlessly. But you see in Exodus 2, verse 23 to 25, God saw Israel struggle. You know, it reads in verse 23 that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. You see, God heard the people of Israel. God listened to them. God saw their struggling. And we see in the following chapters that God raises up Moses, a nobody, someone who had been exiled for killing an Egyptian, someone who had fallen from A high status in the Pharaoh's court to being exiled and working as a shepherd. But you see, God worked through Moses to deliver the people of Israel in the most incredible escape story, rescue story, whatever you want to call it, that the world has ever seen. And he does this through the 10 plagues water, the river Nile turning to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock dying, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And then the final one, the death of the firstborn. And this is all covered in Exodus 7, verse 14 through to Exodus 12, verse 32. Now, you see, these plagues, it can be easy to read them and to think, okay, this is a random collection of things to happen to Egypt. But actually, the plagues targeted particular Egyptian deities, not just the people. You see, through these 10 plagues, God wanted to highlight his supreme power and authority over the fictional gods of the Egyptians. It reads in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, that on their gods, also the Lord executed judgments. God is absolutely sovereign. And we can see here that the Lord did the humanely impossible. Throughout all history, no nation has ever freed themselves from slavery. No nation has ever taken that decision to have themselves freed from slavery. It's always been external. And this is so important. It's so important for Israel. It's so critical to the whole of the Old Testament. In fact, it's so critical and foundational that the words or the phrase brought you out of Egypt is mentioned more than 30 times in the whole Old Testament, with the majority of them being in the Torah or the first five books. And this is all done so that Israel remember who their God is, so that Israel remember what God has done. You see here in this first Exodus, Israel is delivered from slavery. And they're brought out of slavery and a covenant is formed with them. In Exodus chapter 19 to Exodus chapter 24, this Mosaic covenant is formed, the Ten Commandments. But you see, this covenant was not a means of salvation. The law, the Mosaic law was not a means of salvation in itself, but it was meant to set Israel apart. It was meant to distinguish Israel as a holy people to differentiate them from the pagan nations that surrounded them to ensure that they didn't fall into the abysmal practices of other nations who would some of which who would sacrifice their children to their gods some of which who used prostitution in their temples as a means of increasing fertility on their land you see god wanted to set israel apart to show all around the nation of israel that they were god's people And this explains the cycles of blessings and curses in the Old Testament that are taken from Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. You see, a covenant was a contract. It was the basis of a relationship. It outlined what the relationship would entail and it outlined the conditions and promises of that. But you see, this first Exodus, this first Mosaic covenant is all pointing to something greater. It's pointing to another Exodus where God would free all humanity from sin and establish a new covenant in his son. But now jumping back to the passage in Luke 22, after that brief recap, we can see Luke 22. It opens verses one to six. It opens with the scheming of the leaders. You see, Passover was a big event. That's an understatement, to be honest. Passover was the event. There would have been a huge amount of people in Jerusalem, the capital city. It was a massive thing for the Israelites. They've been practicing it for more than 2000 years, every single year on the 14th day of the month, without fail. There's no tradition comparable to that today. There's no tradition that really holds the significance that it would have held to the Israelites. You see, in verses one to six, the religious leaders are scheming. They're trying to work out how to kill Jesus. And they're very crafty. We can see here in verse three. That there are bigger factors at play than just us, that we are not alone in this world because it reads in verse three that then Satan entered into Judas, Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. You see, this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6, 10 to 19. It makes it even more important. I'm just going to read you from verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see. We are engaged in active spiritual warfare. And that's what we see here from this passage. Judas is entered into by Satan and he chased the allure of money. He dabbled in sin. He dipped his toe into sin and was eternally condemned. Luke doesn't write it, but in Matthew's gospel, we're told that he agreed to sell Jesus out for 30 silver coins. It's likely that would have been 30 denarii. Uh, So a denarii was a day's wage for your average labourer, eight hours of work of just doing traditional labor. So he sold Jesus out. For six weeks worth of wages. He sold Jesus out for that money. And as a result of his dabbling in sin, he was eternally condemned. But, you know, we might read this and we might think, what is going on? If Satan can enter into one of the 12 disciples, what is going on? But we can see actually in the next bit, verses 7 to 13. You see, despite this apparent chaos, Despite this strange ton of events that we would never expect, God is always in control. You see, if this was a novel or a film, we as the audience would still be reeling from the shock of seeing one of the 12. This is one of the original 12 who Jesus called to follow him back in the early chapters of Luke. This is one of the 12 disciples who has been walking alongside Jesus. This is one of the 12 who has seen his miracles, who saw him feed 5,000, who saw him raise people from the dead, who saw him heal, who saw him speak with such power and authority that everyone would question who he was. It was all a bit overwhelming. You see, we've got the whole bureaucracy plotting against Jesus. The entire religious establishment seems against Jesus. You know, we're even told actually in the previous chapter, 21 verse 37, that Jesus couldn't even sleep in the city for fear that he would be killed and found. Jesus was sleeping out on the mountainside. It reads in verse 37, he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. You see, we're meant to be overwhelmed. But then there's this passage here, verse 7 to 13. God is still in control. We can see in verses 10 to 12 that Jesus lays out an exact plan for Peter and John, his disciples. He says, verse 10, he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of that house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepare it there. You see, Jesus is laying out his exact plan. And I want to actually illustrate a specific point here in verse 10, when Jesus is like, look, when you went to the city, you'll see a man carrying a jar of water. Now, we might read this. And we might think, cool, it's just some dude going to get his water for the day or for the week or whatever. But actually, back in first century, that would have been really peculiar because the task of water bearing was normally handed to children or women, not to men. That's the first thing. So the chance of this being coincidental, highly unlikely. Secondly, the chance that if you see a random man on the street carrying water and you follow him back to his house or back to his master's house, that his master will know exactly what you're talking about. You see, there's no way this could be a coincidence. There's no way this could be chance. And then we see here in verse 13, and they went and found it just as he has told them. Nothing different, not a single piece out of place see, this should remind us of when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. Jesus, again, he sends his disciples to go and fetch a colt, a young donkey that has never been ridden before. And they find it exactly as he said, just as he had told them. You see, this is meant to illustrate that no matter what Satan might be scheming behind the scenes, no matter what huge constitutions might seek to bring God's plan down. God is sovereign regardless. Now, moving on to the next bit, verses 14 to 23. This is eating the Passover meal. You see, Jesus is talking about the significance of the next few days. He's talking about what's going to happen over the coming few days. You know, it's been a pretty busy week for the disciples, really. Jesus enters Jerusalem a week before the Passover. He has that great entry. He rides in on a on an occult of a donkey and everyone's saying, you know, shouting the messianic prophecies. Everyone's laying their coats, their branches on the ground. Everyone's really excited. And then we have the whole event. You know, Jesus is teaching. He teaches about paying taxes to Caesar. He confronts the religious leaders. He teaches about the widow who put her offering into the offering box. He foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. He's been busy this week. But you see, this feast, this meal that they eat together, it all points to the new. It points to a new feast, a new covenant and a new life. You see, verse 15 here, we can see that Jesus felt human emotions. Verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We can see later in Gethsemane in chapter 22, verses 39 to 46, again, that Jesus felt human emotions. You know, sat down on his knees and he's crying out to God. He's saying, Look, you know, if there's another way, please let there be another way. But if not, then I'll go through with it. You see, he knows what suffering he's going to endure over the next few days. You see this phrase here, verse 15 I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you the English here doesn't actually do it justice because actually the Hebrew that it was written in was I have eagerly desired with eager desiring now that sounds a little bit flowery in English but that is a traditional Hebrew manner of speech and we've got to remember Luke is writing to Theophilus we've got to look at the whole context of the books if you remember right back from the start Luke is writing to most excellent Theophilus and he's writing to Theophilus to convince him that Christianity is the true Judaism. There is a true continuation of the Jewish religion in order for Christianity to be legalized in the Roman Empire. You see, there are high stakes because it's likely that Theophilus was the judge who would preside over Paul's trial in Rome. That's why he includes this here. And continuing on. Verse 16, I mentioned that this whole meal is pointing to the new. It's pointing to a new feast, a new covenant, and a new life. You see, verse 16, it's pointing to a new feast. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see, the Passover that the disciples were eating right now, the Passover that the Israelites have been practicing for 2,000 years, it was a mere shadow of what was to come you see in revelation 19 verse 9 we're told blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb you see this verse is in the context of talking about the uniting of the church who is the bride with the bridegroom of christ you see the old testament includes lots of feasts you know if you if you've kind of read through some of the old testament some leviticus deuteronomy you'll see that there's a lot of feasts you know feast of trumpets feasts of this feasts of this they had a lot of feasts but you see these are mere shadows of what is to come it's all pointing forward to christ that's what you see if you read the old testament you'll see that so much of it is pointing to jesus even right from the start even back in genesis back with adam we can see that the fall of adam just points to The day when the new and perfect Adam would come to earth. You see, Paul writes in his letters, you know, what Adam lost in the garden, Jesus came to restore. There's this idea that the whole Old Testament is pointing forward. You see, in Christ, we have a better Passover lamb, a better high priest, a grander exodus. But it's really revolutionary what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a tradition that's been going on for more than 2000 years is going to be utterly transformed, That they won't need to do that anymore. He says here, you know, I will not do this again until it's been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's basically saying that this is going to be it because what's about to happen is what's been prophesied for the last two, two and a half thousand years, 3000 years, however long it's been. That's, it's all pointing towards this event. It's so significant. And you see, in the Passover, the tradition of the Passover, as was held by the Israelites throughout the whole of the Old Testament, is going back to the original one. As the angel of death passed through Egypt, killing the firstborn of all Egyptian livestock, all Egyptian families, the Israelites were to mark their doorframes with the blood of a lamb. And you see a couple of things about this lamb. It had to be a male. Okay, actually could have been a goat as well, a lamb or a goat. It had to be male. It had to be one year old and it had to be without blemish. It had to be a perfect lamb. But not only this, as the Passover tradition continued, they had to care for the lamb for four days prior to its sacrifice. You see, on the 10th of the month, you'd have to bring in a lamb from your flock without blemish. Had to be a nice lamb. You had to have it in the house, almost like a pet for four days. So you generate this bond, this love and affinity towards the lamb so that its loss would mean something. You see, that is what this is getting at. That is what this is all getting at, because we can see that at this Passover, Jesus is that lamb. There's literally countless verses referring to Jesus being a lamb. John 129. John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul tells us, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Or in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 19, Peter tells us, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see that phrase there? A lamb without blemish or spot. That's very common Old Testament language. That's seen all the way throughout the Old Testament. Whenever you're looking at sacrifices, All the sacrifice they have to give to God must be without blemish or spot, because the whole idea of a sacrifice, it's not about palming off what you've got to God. It's about honoring him. It's about actually being like, look, I'm going to give this and it's got to mean something. So Jesus is our better Passover lamb. But also he's our better high priest. You see, the Old Testament, it was all about the high priest interceding for the people. That's covered in Leviticus 4 verses 3 to 21, actually. It's all about the high priest interceding for the people. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and make sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. But you see now we have a better high priest. Paul writes in Hebrews 4 verse 14 to 16, Jesus, the great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, we have this great high priest. We have this grander exodus where Israel was delivered from Egypt. We have been delivered from death. You see, going back now to Luke 22. Jesus tells us in verse 20, he talks about this new covenant being made in his blood. He talks about as he's drinking from the cup, he says this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now. Throughout the whole Bible, God's covenants are always made with sacrificial blood. In Exodus 24, verse eight, it reads, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And you see, this is kind of wrapped up in Paul's words in Hebrews nine verses 11 to 22. So in verse 22, he says the law requires nearly everything to be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, in this new covenant, through Jesus' death, through the shedding of the blood of the Son of God, there is the forgiveness of sin. There is the internal renewal of our hearts and an intimate knowledge of God that we now have access to. And it's all because of Jesus' sacrifice. You see, Zechariah talks about this in Zechariah chapter nine, verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You see, this new covenant will be marked, inaugurated by Jesus' death and resurrection. That's why it's so significant. That's why this is so big here. Now, moving on to the next bit, verse 24 to 30. This is a warning to us. This is a warning that we're called to not crave power. This is another reminder of Jesus's upside down, back to front, topsy-turvy kingdom, that we should live totally in contrast to the culture that surrounds us, the culture that so readily condemns and rejects the one and only son of God. You see, this dispute has come up before. The disciples, a couple of times throughout the Gospels, they argue about who's going to be the greatest when they get to eternal life. But you see, Jesus here is telling us to not crave power. In verse 26, Jesus says, Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. You see, we're called to follow Jesus' death and resurrection pathway, to die to our worldly desires, to be crucified with Christ and raised to new life. That's the idea that Paul's getting at in Galatians 2, verse 20. You see, It all comes back to this idea that because Jesus died in our place, that should change the way that we live now. Because it's changed our eternal future. You see, this idea of being convicted of sin and repenting. This idea of repentance is that we actually change, that we turn around, that we turn away from the sins of the world, the sins that... Have been plaguing us, and that we actually followed God. You see, because of what Jesus did, out of that should come our works because it's changed our eternal future. Now, moving on to the end of the passage here, in verse 37, jumping forward quite a bit, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 12. And it says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. You see, Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. And we've touched on Isaiah 53 a lot, but it's so important. You see, it says in Isaiah 53 that he was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse six, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then jumping on to verse 11, by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You see, the righteous one, my servant, that's talking about Jesus. Because of Jesus's death and resurrection, many, that's us, can be accounted righteous. You see, at the first Passover, God delivered his people from slavery. Yet here, through the blood of his only son, God delivered all who choose to accept that sacrifice of his son from sin and death, forming a new covenant and giving us new life. And that's all from me. We're going to go to some breakout rooms shortly. But yeah, that's everything for me for this evening. Actually,
1: before Ben throws us into some small groups, I was just, I just had a bit of a brainwave. I was just, I was thinking about what Ben was saying about these sacrifices and everything. And it, it was just like, I started thinking all about how we look back at Leviticus and the amount of sacrifices that go on. Literally the first ten or so chapters is just all about the sacrifices that they're making all the all these sacrifices the different ways to do it the different ways to isolate after you've got a virus oh wow speaking into the current day and like so much is happening with their with their sacrifices and it's the complete change of culture now because we're living in a world where there's no sacrifice needed when Jesus has already sacrificed himself sacrificed himself for everybody everything that could possibly have it happen giving God our lives is that giving it up for him giving up up for that sacrifice so that we don't need to live a life where we need to think hmm when am I next going to get a lamb and take it to church to sacrifice it we don't live in a culture where we need to think like that anymore because of the sacrifice Jesus and it is so great that because of the way that Jesus was 100% man 100% God 100% of the time he was able to be that perfect sacrifice as Ben spoke about so eloquently and so amazingly just now and it was just so it's such a it's such a crazy thing to think that there was actually a time where people had to think like this and then now we live in a a world where we're just in a different complete way of living because of the fact that We do not need to sacrifice for Jesus has already been that sacrifice for us. Like, it's as if there's levels to this game. There's lamb and then there's Jesus. And it's like, it's crazy. And even through it all, he was always working up to be that
2: sacrifice. As 100% man, 100% God, 100% of the time.